Hello listeners, this is a short announcement. On the 28th of November, David and I will have our first live podcast, our first live show in Brighton. We're opening the doors at 6.30. We have all the details in the show notes. So join us on the 28th of November from 6.30 in Brighton for our first ever Men Up, Men Down live show. Welcome to the Man Up, Man Down podcast, presented by Volker Baluda and David Pawsey. We discuss the pressures and challenges faced by men approaching middle age that we're often too embarrassed to speak about with our friends. You can find us online at www.manupdown.com. Enjoy the show and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Welcome to another episode of Men Up, Men Down. We're very pleased to have John Paul Davis on the call. Um, so John Paul is an experienced therapist running a full-time private practice from his home in, Co- oh, I hope I pronounced it right, Co- Co- Cobham. Cobham, yeah. Is it? Oh, always get the difficult ones. Um, having worked as a solicitor in the City of London for the first half of his career. And he has now published a self-help book, Finding a Balanced Connection, and written about a range of well-being and psychological topics for various magazines and websites. And John Paul has also um, a YouTube channel and a podcast, and that's how I got to know him, featuring content about his career change, what life is like as a therapist, and advice on a range of mental health and well-being issues. So first of all, John Paul, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Really happy to be here. If I say lots of questions, I mean, I, I reached out to you because I'm, as most people know probably by now, because I keep talking about it, I, I trained to be a hypnopsychotherapist. Um, and I reached out to you because you were a solicitor, lawyer before, and actually my, my trainer or my um, teacher, he, he used to be a lawyer and, and before as well. So, and, and all of you reassured me it's possible to go from a well-paid career, the golden cage, to, to psychotherapy. Um, as, as we just said in the prelude, I'm not going to ask you how much you earn, but that's definitely a topic I'm interested in. But do you just want to give us a bit of an overview, if I say who you are, your, your story, how you got into psychotherapy and why, why you left law behind? I mean, it must be a fascinating topic to work in law, isn't it? <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> it depends on the, the topic, I think. But yes, yeah, so I was a lawyer for 10 years and uh, realized that it wasn't everything that I wanted it to be, I guess. I mean, I've I've done a few videos on it on the uh, YouTube channel and podcast as well. It's not that it was terrible, but it was, I I don't suppose in terms of my thoughts, feelings, that it was in alignment really. I was um, in needing to carry on and do something which I really wasn't that interested in. Of course, law requires a lot as far as time commitment, the the energy that you put into it, and it wasn't quite me. So I was sort of carrying on doing something despite often what I felt about it. And then as a result of that, which is often the case, I think for people, I would experience emotional symptoms as a result of that. So increased anxiety, some sort of addictive behavior. So I was in therapy and then saw the benefits of that very much. And I think being risk averse as a lawyer, I thought what I'll do. Well, I was at a stage after about nine years where I was probably a little bit late for looking for partnership, but that was the next level. Law has a very prescribed hierarchy then, or, or career progression, which might be different now, but you would be a trainee, then an assistant solicitor, a senior solicitor, and the next thing that you would aspire to would be partnership. And I, it would be harder work, 
vast income. This was city law firms that I, that I was in, so it just didn't appeal really. So I took a career break and did a few things, one of which was a foundation year in counselling and psychotherapy, but did a screenwriting course and some volunteering as well. And uh, yeah, never really looked back, really enjoyed the therapy, realised that it was a career in terms of financially, as you were saying, but uh, you know, I could make work. And um, it's gone from there, really. I did initially, because it's it's quite long to train, it's five years part-time, foundation year, and then a four-year diploma. Uh, and a lot of the, th the things that people will ask me about it is how, you know, making that transition from a high paid job to to running your own private practice, people worry about it. And obviously it is a pr practical issue for people. But so I did try and go back part time, actually. Uh, I did suggest that to the law firm. But 15 years ago, when I was suggesting it, it was not something that people would do work part time in a law firm. I'm sure that's all different now. But um, yeah, so I was able to finish the training and uh, start a private practice in about the third year. It's gone, it's gone from there. F fantastic. I think, I mean, it's interesting what you say, right? You say you're not in alignment. And I, I feel a little bit like that with, with you know, I mean, depending who's listening now, but uh, with this industry I, I worked in for, for most of my career. Hmm. And uh, I've been looking around, you know, where, where, where do I see my next, next step? And, you know, to be honest, I mean, at, at this stage in my life, I, I don't even know if I want to be a psychotherapist, you know, in, in, in four to seven years time. But what I'm already learning and, and you know, how I can implement it with, with other stuff I'm doing is, you know, it's, it's fantastic. And, and the good thing is, you know, you have four to seven years, you know, once you study to decide, you know, what do you want to do with it? And um, I know we discussed that. I mean, I also work as a coach and, you know, I, I already have the part-time job, right? So I can I can do it part-time and... Um, but it's fascinating. Um, I mean, we, we, we said to begin with as well, it seems to be a trend that people move from, you know, jobs, you know, high paying jobs, low paying jobs into psychotherapy. What, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing it a lot. That I guess the reason I would be seeing it a lot particularly would be because, well, that's my story. And I suppose I put my story out there as far as YouTube and also in other forms of media as well. But definitely there's a lot of people coming through. I just think the rise of the awareness around mental health, um, more people being in therapy themselves. Uh, it's, yeah, it's it's sort of value to people. I think more people are realizing the value. Uh, and I suppose actually it's not just the value of like that carrot as far as having good mental health, whatever that would mean to somebody. Uh, it's also necessity for people as well with a, you know, a very complicated world having introduced the, the you know the internet and all of the problems and all of the comparisons that come with that for people i think those things there's the potential for connection which is yes. wonderful isn't it if we can use it for that i think that's an amazing thing that it can provide but often social media and the media for example it's stressful for people and uh, leads to a more sort of complicated life full of comparisons and people are much more aware of their mental health words like narcissism OCD, anxiety, depression, uh, addictive behavior. Uh, people are much more open about talking about it. Every sort of pop psychology show, reality show, seems yeah. to be if it's about relationships, it's talking about narcissism, gaslighting, invalidating somebody's feelings. All of these uh, psychological concepts that are all about mental health and um, really, I think, moving from disconnection to connection for people are just much more in the public consciousness whatever environment you're in actually and uh yeah uh people see the, the benefits of it and i think therefore 
uh, are looking into uh, training in it, but with the big question of is it something that, well, practically, how is that going to work out? And certainly financially, how is that going to work? And also, I think you mentioned you had therapy as well. That's that's how you got in. And I know a lot of people, that's, you know, how they got started. If I say I never had therapy, I mean, you know, we, we all had therapy at, at some point or another, but, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't have like a long stint of therapy. I did some, some RTT, so, so rapid transformational therapy. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of coaching. Yeah. Do, do you think because more people get therapy these days that that kind of triggers people to think, oh, that's something I could do as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, therapy fundamentally, as I say, it's uh, it's about relationship, isn't it? And when you were saying about people training, a lot of people that trained on my course didn't actually go on and become therapists or running a private practice. Some of them just continue doing what they were doing before, perhaps change what they were doing before. Because I think the thing that comes from therapy and also the thing that can come from, from the training is it's about relationship being able to connect more in relationship i think personally it's uh you know less likely to disconnect and therefore experience anxiety depression loneliness all those things are more likely to remain in connection with ourselves and other people and um yeah as i say i think people you know see the benefit of that now and can feel the benefit and those things are how people feel about what they do is much more important i think perhaps now than it ever used to be yeah no, I think it's just just more awareness as well. I mean, I remember last couple of years ago, or maybe even longer ago, someone was saying, uh, you know, everyone in America has a coach, so that will ultimately happen in, in Europe. And uh, I think the trend is now that everyone in America has their own therapist, right? So yeah. eventually that will happen in Europe as well. So that's where see, yeah. a lot of trends are coming from, for for better or worse. David, you, you, you have questions, because I know you, you watched the YouTube channel yesterday, didn't you? I did, I did. <laughs> um, I, have, I have lots of questions. Um <laughs> Not sure where to start, but yeah, I mean, um, I have been having psychotherapy for quite a long time, and and it's something that I've sort of thought I'd quite like to do, which I'll come back to in a moment. Yeah, I mean, well, so watching your YouTube video, um, I mean, I used to work relatively near you um, at the Financial Times, uh, just across okay. the river, and it, I mean, so like one of the things that I picked up on your video was was just sort of how you were talking about your sort of role was almost as a project manager in in sort of pulling together like hospital, or the building of, of hospitals and schools and things, and and you sort of you talked about how you'd sort of get a very brief high once a project was completed and then that was it you know you'd sort of move on to the next thing and and, and you sort of said I mean the thing that sort of really resonated with me was how you were sort of saying about you you know you, you sort of wouldn't actually see the schools being built but you're almost to me it almost felt like you were telling yourself well I'm actually I am doing something constructive I'm doing mm-hmm. something worthwhile but it was almost like you're having to convince yourself. And, you know, and, and for me, like at the Financial Times, you know, I was kind of like, I'm working at a world-renowned company. I'm writing for a living, which is what I always wanted to do. But, you know, it's like, but why aren't I happy? And, you know, and it was almost like I was trying to sort of convince myself that, you know, that I was in the right place. And, and yeah, and so, I mean, that's sort of something that, that on the videos that I've watched that you talked about, that it is almost like a, um, you know, it, it, it's a feeling that you can't quite put your finger on. And, you know, and I think there's there's not really many that people that do actually 
get up thinking, great, I'm going to work today, you know, and, and there are, you know, there are people that do that. And I think, you know, the workplace, uh, I mean, I've worked for myself for a number of years. I have a client where I go into their office quite a bit. So, you know, I, I guess I've kind of got my foot in a working environment. I don't know where I was going with this one, but um, yeah, I guess, I guess it was, you know, just that thing of, of, you know, almost like a low level of anxiety, but, you know, not knowing what it is, but, you know, you just keep, well, sleepwalking through life, I guess, is, is a term yeah. that you sort of hear a lot. Yeah, because I think uh, if you look in terms of human beings, uh, whatever gender, you mean you use the word happy. The thing, like, I mean, I would see that there are, which the book is based on as well, that we have three different systems, really, that we operate from, and only three. <laughs> People have all sorts of different uh, versions of that. Of course, in psychotherapy, we'll learn all sorts of different versions too. But there is, you know, the survival one, which is about fear and anger, clearly, uh, and protection, disconnection, uh, which is not one of happiness. It's about survival. Uh, then there is uh, reward, strive. So competition, winning, status, more money, more money than other people, having more than other people, sex, food, those sorts of so acquiring resources. And, um, and then there is connection. So love of self, love of others, self-worth, uh, connection to the environment, pets, people, partners, friends. And when you were talking about the Financial Times, that sort of the, the, the sort of name that you always wanted to work for, I guess that's more of a status mm. thing, isn't it? And I think those things are very powerful uh, for human beings uh, from an evolutionary point of view, the people that had status, more money, more stuff. Uh, well, of course, the ones that survived primarily, but then there's the ones that had more, were perhaps more admired. If you have more, well, you have more resources, don't you? If you win, then you, you're you beating others. And those things are admired by other people often. I, just, I think from a, as an evolutionary sort of primal point of view for human beings, really valuable. The trouble with them is they don't give a sustained happiness to human beings. To get a bonus or a job somewhere, you get a high, but then that's it. It fades away, doesn't it? It isn't a sustained sense of connection to self and others at all. If you're looking at a bonus, you'll always need a bigger bonus. You'll always be comparing to somebody else who got a bigger bonus. If somebody you know gets a bigger house, there's always somebody who was one that, that's bigger. So I think you know as much as that drive place is helpful for people and status and those kind of things, they're a part of life. If that's all we're doing, uh, it isn't sustained happiness for human beings. If you're looking at people coming into therapy at middle age and men particularly, you know, often kind of status, money, acquisition of resources, those sorts of things have been the things that have been of primal, uh, primary importance and actually at times at the expense of connection and relationships to other people. Uh, so, and I think what therapy is often about, certainly training as a therapist as well, is more about connection with self, more about what relationships are like with other people. And, and often as well, the skills that are required for both are very different you know, to, to win, to get jobs, I guess we need to be better than other people. If I'm going to negotiate something in a law firm, I go in with my frame, I need to win. I need to overcome the opposition, whatever it might be. And those qualities, winning, getting somebody else to bend the knee, you know, those is, is not helpful. In fact, it's the opposite of helpful probably in relationships, whether that's romantic relationships, friendships, competition doesn't work better than, less than, doesn't work brilliantly in relationships, I don't think. It's, ma it's much more about looking for similarity, for you know, empathy, those sorts of things, which are, are just not as, depending on the job that you do, but are just not as um, 
useful and in fact can can be the opposite of useful to to progress your career so uh yeah i think it's something that a lot of people can get into i think it's something that particularly men i know most all genders work uh but um but uh i can i can see that men might be more often hooked into status their job might often more often talk about their job than uh relationships necessarily i mean um sort of one of the things again sort of going back to your video that um i mean you know you sort of talked about the brief high and you know and this well and sort of in in the you know i guess as a sort of larger sort of trend this you know chasing the next well high or you know success and i mean i, I sort of did a social post on um on our, our tiktok channel um, an instagram channel and i was just sort of saying about how um you know after we'd sort of published the last episode of the first season you know i was like oh we we, we should have celebrated it you know we'd it was a big achievement we'd you know produced an entire podcast season which you know it has been a goal of mine for a while yeah and and that's sort of something that you know, in my therapy sessions I've talked about is not enjoying the moment. And recently I was watching um, a documentary on Netflix. It was about a college American football team, Florida Gators. It's called the Swamp Kings. Okay. There was this basically like the coach was, um, his dad was in the military. So he took a real sort of militaristic approach to training like the, the college footballers. And, you know, sort of in, in that, well, in the US, you know, college football was a huge, huge thing. And basically, like, this coach, they'd won, I think, you know, they'd won two two massive titles in three years or something. Well, no, sorry, three big titles in two years. Yeah. And one of the players was like, oh, wow, coach, you know, you've won these, you know, what, what have you got left to achieve? And then all the players went in to the changing room celebrating the success. And the coach was, like, texting the play like the new recruits that will be coming in the following year you know and it's kind of like he's already stressing about winning next year's title yeah and you know and it was just kind of like wow you know it, it's it doesn't matter who you are you know or what level of success you have you know it's kind of well, what what do you define as success and yeah if well which you know uh Volker did an entire podcast series about but you know it's kind of like well it's got to be about how you define the success i guess which yeah again is that connection to self essentially definitely and i think with human beings uh, you know the uh, the great thing is we can have a, a definition of success which is also about promotions and status and material wealth and those things that is success too isn't it the fact that somebody's moved themselves through from somewhere where they didn't really have much to somewhere where they have a lot that success and also, it's an and, isn't it? I, rather than an or, than sort of either or. And I think we probably also ought to look in terms of, of success as well, of how well we regulate ourselves, what we do with our anger, whether we show our tears, what our communication skills are like, whether uh, our friends and family would say that we are good at intimacy. Uh, you know, there is that thing that the greatest gift you can give to a child is a regulated nervous system your own regulated nervous system, because from that place, you can contain whatever distress that they're going through. They can't do it themselves. We're not born doing that. The only way we learn that is by being regulated in relationship with our, our caregivers. But um, 
you know, a lot of, if you're looking at, if somebody's sort of stuck in that drive place or that's the place that's dominant, you know, the greatest gift will be about material wealth and possessions and those things. It's not to diminish those things. It's just, and also, and also, to what extent are we, because in order to achieve those things, we might be at work all the time and you can't regulate a child from work. So there's a balance, isn't there? And, um, and of course, somebody might say, well, I choose to earn lots and lots of money and not particularly be around my family. And I'll leave that to somebody else. That is just that most people, for example, who have children would probably say that the most important thing to them are their relationships and their, and their children. And, um, and I think we probably need to look at if that is the case, is that borne out by our behavior? Is what's actually happening in our lives, is what we're doing in alignment with those values? Because if that is the case, what's happening in relation, what's happening in relationship? Uh, what are we doing to, as I say, show love to others? In, in what ways do we do that? That sort of love languages type thing. It's a lot in there. Um, a lot of a therapy session, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Life is just one big therapy session. I like to think. <laughs> oh, you should get that on a t-shirt. Yeah. You're probably right. That that would be something for um, Swag that, that David wants to launch. Yeah, you know, our podcast is just one big therapy session. Maybe, maybe that. Anyway, Man Up Man Down is sponsored by Well Doing. As someone who has seen a counsellor for a number of years, I think their approach is great. They want you to find the mental health professional who is right for you. You can filter your search to highlight therapists with expertise where you need it, or you can pay to use their personalised matching service. The people who run Well Doing are experts in mental well-being, and they also have loads of posts and interviews to keep your mental health in good shape. Take a look at welldoing.org. I mean, one... One thing I'm kind of thinking about whilst listening for the last few minutes is it's about connection with others, but you, you also said men in the Middle Ages, right? They, they they have more and more therapy. And, you know, I'm not saying women in the Middle Ages don't, but obviously our, our podcast is focused on that as well. Why is it that, that middle-aged men, and I, I'm not expecting you to have the answer, but m- maybe you have an opinion, right? It's like, why, why, why do us middle-aged men, you know, go like, Oh, I'm I'm fed up of my law career. I'm I'm fed up of my you know ed tech career or whatever. I want to do something different. Once of a sudden, money is you know money is still important because we live in that golden cage. You know we we need our baseline. And we say, oh, actually, I missed out on family potentially, right? I mean, I I definitely did. And like, why 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 do we get to a stage in our life where we go like, oh, actually, I want to live by my values. I want to live and do things that are important to me, right? And and you know change my life and you know rather than pursue what i pursued before and you know as, as i speak i'm kind of thinking a lot of us i mean at least myself and, and i know a few others we went to uni not knowing what we wanted to do right i i didn't go to uni going like oh, i'm gonna end up in sales i'm gonna be a sales consultant and, and a coach and, and study psychotherapy you know it's, it's usually if i say our parents going like oh you do this that and the other and, and then you just end up doing something and you just end and end up earning money and then you kind of feel at least i felt like that and, and maybe the younger generation is different we have to fulfill that career we have to fulfill mm-hmm. you know the external um views you know in terms of what, what you mentioned the big house the big car you know ticking all those, those boxes is it because when we get to middle age we, we ticked all these boxes and and we go like yeah. what's next I think, you know, that can certainly be the case because as I say, not, you know, the sort of tribe, place, status, those are 
are good things from the point of view of acquiring enough money to do the things that we want to do and perhaps to impress others and to have status. Uh, but I think people see that it's diminishing returns. I think over time, it doesn't give the joy that it once did. And also to if what's been required is that somebody has disconnected from themselves, what they feel and potentially uh, disconnected in terms of relationships with others because of the commitment that that work requires is consistently stressful, which is a place of disconnect. Yeah. Then they take that out on their families or whatever it might be. You can also see the adverse uh, effects as well. So it's not just the, ca the carrot, I suppose, of something new and that's going to feel good potentially, relationship, more connection with self and others. I also think it's the stick of the distress, the, the, the psychological and emotional distress that human beings experience. I, I would also add... And this is only a sometimes, but yeah. I don't think it's ever been the case with a woman in terms of therapy for me. I have never had, a, a, perhaps in the case of somebody who's addicted, because there's a lot of self-talk around that. So someone's often encouraged or, or threatened into therapy, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, but it is, I would say, you know, sometimes the case with men that they will come to therapy uh, because somebody else has said, you've got to, or our yeah. relationship's over. And as I say, other than those sort of cases of addiction sometimes, yeah. it's never the case with with women. So it's not just that men come to that realisation themselves uh, uh, all the time. It's that they're also somebody else, perhaps who has, for that period of time, been the person who finds connection easier. Uh, so sees the value of it, uh, has said that, you know, you're going to need to. Because they also have gone through decades uh, and there are a particular stage in their life where partners, for example, where they're assessing what they want to do for the next 20 years. And if they are, perhaps children are leaving, whatever it might be, if that's the situation, uh, they're looking at this partner thinking, well, you know, we have money, we're, we're going to live, we don't need to, from a protection point of view, uh, we, you know, we're going to stay alive, we have enough money. Then generally, I think people move to those sort of step up a level in terms of need, which is connection, love. Are they being attuned to on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of their emotional world? Is this about growth, fulfillment, meaning? So it's not its not just that men come to that realisation themselves, but, but they often do. Uh, but it's also, as I say, that I think partners sometimes say, you're going to need to. And sometimes it's, you know, I can see you're distressed. I, I think I've had an exper experiences in relationship throughout my life that they make me feel better. I think if you go to a therapist, that's what's going to happen. And m most people, at least theoretically, all genders can uh, envisage that, uh, that another human being in a relationship with another human being can do that and offer something different. But as I say, it is some, it's sometimes if you don't do this, we're going to have a a problem, life will come apart and that will have implications financially, status-wise. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's that that brings people into therapy, uh, which can make it a bit more difficult as far right. as how therapy goes. Well, I was going to say, um, so yeah, how, how do you, well, A, how often do you sort of have a client that obviously doesn't want to be there? How do you kind of break that down and and sort of is is there like a general sort of aha moment you know where you kind of see the or well either you see it or they see it I mean sort of just as a side note I always sort of find quite often it's not in the session that you have that moment yeah you know it, it's sort of yeah you're walking down the street like three days after a session you're like 
Ooh, you know, and something filters through. But um, but yeah, anyway, sorry, John Paul. If, uh... No, definitely. I mean, sometimes things happen in sessions, but I think what you're saying there is that, you know, it's about all of life, isn't it? Therapy, we hear things, cognitive realizations, but it's about that lived experience. And sometimes it's midway through the week that we respond to something differently or see that we could have responded to something differently. You know, th- those are often the moments that are most significant for people. But certainly if somebody comes in because they've had to come in, well, I say had to, they, they didn't, but, but there's pressure externally to do that. Uh, you know, it, can, it does make it more difficult. As I, say, I wouldn't say it's, it's often. I think generally now, I, I've certainly seen, I've been doing this for 13 years, something like that. During that period, significantly more men coming into therapy of all ages. I mean, I only see people from 18 and above, but 18, 19, early 20s, you know, or, or coming to therapy, comfortably telling their friends they have a therapist, all their friends do. I mean, I, I, that's not across the board. I mean, a particular mm. area here where that may be uh, more usual than others, potentially. But certainly, if somebody's coming in because they have to, they sort of present it as well. And the difficulty is, of course, they're then in a place immediately of disconnect. They're doing it to please another. So it, it's in some ways, it's being used to get a need met elsewhere, which is to placate somebody else. So I suppose you might say it's to connect with a partner, but, and actually, you know, what I think therapy ideally requires is that curiosity about things. And often when somebody's made to come in, they haven't in the past had experiences or, 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 or they, they don't experience themselves and the world in a way that's conducive to, to relationships. So curiosity would be one of those things there's often a situation of knowing. And I think, again, anybody in work, you know, the work that I did as a lawyer, if somebody was to ask me a question and I said, um, well, let's just be curious about that. You know, it is not, (laughs) you know, all service industries, probably, you know, builders, all sorts of things we have to know. And I think, and I, I can see men may often there's a bit more of a pressure to know, perhaps. And the thing about therapy is is being curious about things, isn't it? it was, I was listening to one of your podcasts as well, where you spoke to a guy, it, what was he called? The Man's Men's Shed? And, yeah. Yeah. And he said um, that uh, they, they, they get people, but men, around projects. So fixing a lawnmower. Yeah. And said, you know, you are never going to. I think he said some words to the effect of you're never going to get men to talk about their fe- feelings. So you have to give them a sort of task to do. And I think the trouble is if somebody doesn't really want to be there, it's because they've never actually had experienced the benefit of a relationship, of a co-regulating relationship that they will bring their fear and their sadness and their joy to uh, another person and uh, and that that will make them feel better. You know, work does not really require that often for people. Survival certainly doesn't require that. Fear and anger don't require those things. So, and and often again, I think if, if men feel threatened or that they don't know or get protective, they will often do it with annoyance or anger uh, rather than fear, rather than sit in fear and rather than say, be vulnerable and say, I'm fearful, I don't know it might be a little more irritation or annoyance. And often, again, because there's a disconnection from the body and what somebody's experiencing from moment to moment, they may not even know it. And, of course, irritation and annoyance is um, in the way of relationship. So there's a number of different things, I think, when that happens uh, that, that are in the way of the relationship. So it does make it more difficult. But that certainly doesn't mean that uh, it's not going to work in the universe commas um but it, but yeah it does make it it does make it more difficult i think 
I mean, one of the things that uh, we like to talk about on here is uh, alcohol. Um, and, and you sort of you like said, to talk about well, alcohol, did you say? Yeah, yes. <laughs> David um, likes to talk about alcohol. <laughs> Time of recording, I've been sober for a few weeks now. <laughs> but um, I mean, obviously, you sort of you know talked about how a lot of the time it's kind of anxiety and you know well one of the things that you mentioned was you know so, so it's almost like you know symptoms that are indicative of you know of, of something not being right and you know sure. the anxiety obviously you know alcohol or drug consumption you know you've said is 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 a is a factor i mean obviously in the uk you know big drinking culture you know and it is pretty much the only sort of thing often that binds men together. And, you know, and I've, my experience is there are other ways to get that connection. I mean, I guess, you know, sort of, well, when do you realise it's a problem? And, you know, and obviously we've talked about with, with men in therapy, it's because they've, you know, they don't necessarily recognise a problem themselves. They're under duress. And, you know, and I think with alcohol... It is a very accepted, well, drug to start with, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Where where is that line between? I'm just having, you know, I'm drinking as much as my friends, yeah. Versus, you know, I'm I'm drinking to escape or to to numb myself. I mean, it's I guess it's not just only accepted, isn't it? If I talk to people who are trying to cut out alcohol, they will worry about not drinking alcohol-free beer, for example, of what people will say in the group. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're going for alcohol free, it's not, yeah, as I said, I, I, um, and that would be quite, would be quite common. How am I going to manage that? How am I going to manage saying I'm not drinking? That's because of the annoyance or irritation or frustration it can, it can elicit from other people. So I think with alcohol, as with any behavior and substance that, that people are, are taking in, you know, we're trying to put ourselves into a sort of balanced state, aren't we? That's what we're trying to do all the time, human beings whether it's alcohol or sex or, or even gambling, uh, exercise, work, money, you know, we're trying mm. just to, to feel good. What well, That is our responsibility, I suppose, to take care of ourselves to feel good. Um, when people aren't able to do that in relationship, which is sort of could be 50% of your feel good, for example, uh, the rest of it being what you do for yourself, um, then it's understandable completely that we turn to, turn to other things. And as you say, alcohol is everywhere and and uh, very much accepted. How do you know when it's problematic? I would say uh, it's, it's an adverse consequences thing. So it's being conscious about what are, you know, financially, psychologically, physically, uh, what are the, the implications of the amount of alcohol that you drink? As I was saying about uh, people coming into therapy, there's often a lot of self-talk and denial around it, which is also if you're in cult- culture as well, where everybody does it, you know, somebody says, I think I'm dependent on alcohol. And I have heard this. I wouldn't say it was a client, it was a friend, actually. Somebody what, in their family, very alcohol dependent. And uh, and, and somebody somebody married into the family and said, I think I might be an alcoholic. And what that what a member of the family said was, well, if you are, we all are. So you can't be kind of thing. Yeah. So I think there is that there is that too. And and also, so it is looking at, isn't it, looking at your connection with self, I suppose, what are the consequences for you of continuing to drink in the way that you do? Some people are, you know, it's disconnected and they get used for fights, they're not taking care of themselves physically, say there's financial implications sometimes. Uh, so it's those things to look at. And sometimes we can't necessarily do that with our friends who are in a similar position. So a therapist can 
GP or whoever else uh, can pro- provide perhaps a more objective view of um, of what's happening for you without any kind of ulterior motive, which is that if you if, if I'm next to you in a bar and I would rather you drank because it makes me feel better about my drinking, you know, a therapist isn't going to have that sort of, mm-hmm. that has no ulterior motive other than your well-being. Yes. So, and I think the thing I would say about that as well, that sometimes as well people are drinking or often people might be drinking because of anxiety a lot of people find social situations disconnecting i think men's environments often so, uh, socially more competitive perhaps than than about sort of thoughts feelings and everything's okay and we'll see your fear and we'll see your tears and we'll see your you know it is a there's a lot of competition i think you know kind of who's the funniest i'm doing something at the moment going into the city to talk about banter um, the role of that. And of course, that is across the board with people, whatever gender, but particularly, I think with men, that's around, highly valued. And really, the, the, you know, the, the actual, it's not just humor banter. I mean, humor is very connecting. Humor is very regulating. Humor will put us into a state where we'll feel good. But there's something about banter, which is about looking at a flaw in somebody and amplifying it to deliberately wind them up. And if you're looking, you know, what does wind up mean? It means to dysregulate somebody, to get to irritate them or embarrass them. And I know it can be funny, but uh, those sorts of experiences are dysregulating for people. Alcohol re- uh, releases dopamine, which is going to regulate somebody. It's going to de-stress in, in the short term. Yeah, so I can absolutely see why people uh, do it. I can see why in particular environments as well, often, you know, male friendship groups, why people might do it some more because they may not actually be as safe depending on the environment because of competition, because of perhaps things like banter as other as other environments. How, how do we stop that behavior? I think that's that's a tricky bit, right? Because if I say you're sitting on the side of helping that person that is, has been affected, right? Do you mean alcohol or banter when you say behavior? Which and no, no, there's a, there's a banter or there's a general male, you know, you know that oh that that laddie thing, right? Let's say you go in the pub and someone says, "Oh, I don't drink tonight," you know, and go like, "Oh, you know, you're, you're you're not man enough, right?" Or you're you're not, you know, why why don't you drink, right? You always drink, right? I mean, you you can solve it from that person's perspective, right? I mean, increase confidence, you know, maybe suggesting that they don't go out or whatever. But would it not be nice in a society, to live in a society where society goes like, I don't care if someone drinks or doesn't drink, right? Sure. It's, it's like we, we have that, maybe not the best analogy, I don't know, but, you know, gay people, right? For, for, for years, you know, if I say I grew up, you know, gay, gay is different, you know, it's, it's, it's not right, right? It's like something, you know, others do, you know. And, and now we're like, oh, it's great, you know, we're embracing it, you know, um, transgender, et cetera, et cetera, which is great. Society has, has changed in that, that respect. Which is fantastic, but 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 if I say this, this old school banter, and if you know, I'm I'm, I'm thinking of um, Philadelphia, right? The movie, you know, I was thinking of lawyers in Philadelphia, you know, when 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 they're sitting in the sauna and and, and patch each other on the back and go like, oh, you know what, you know, m- making gay jokes, and, and Tom Hanks is sitting there, right? But this this is exactly the environment. How how do we get rid of that? Well, I mean, I think often with people. Uh, uh, all people, but you know the va- the vast majority of what we do is not actually thought about consciously. How how people work this out, I don't know. But they say that eighty to ninety percent of what we're doing, yeah. Uh, and then you, particularly in groups, there's a lot of unconsciousness we're doing without thinking about it. Now, because somebody might laugh in response, and and it is funny to the person doing it, and the rest of the group laughs. It looks 
connect, connecting. I think if somebody really thought that they were doing something which was hurtful or that what they were doing was actually designed to elevate themselves and put somebody else down and, and was distressing somebody, I suspect that the majority of people, whatever gender, probably would think twice about doing it. It's difficult to stop because, as I say, you know, we're programmed to do yeah in the future what we what we've done in the past and uh, a lot of people start to bring in particularly with bantu being oversensitive it was funny yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know we all need to realize that a response uh to something that we're finding traumatizing or a difficult situation for some people is to fight so some people will say i don't think that's funny you need to stop doing that flee some people will leave a group but there's plenty of people that will collapse or people please so you know they will start to please the person or try to please the person as a survival mechanism it's not yeah. that they're finding it funny it's a way of not being removed from the group which is ultimately for our fight or flight survival part the worst thing that could happen for a part of us so but going back to what you say i, I just yeah. think i think things are changing generally I think that an awareness, I mean, I was talking about that sort of pop psychology thing that what flashes up on Instagram as far as, you know, narcissism, gaslighting, are yeah. statements like you're being oversensitive. So we're starting to hook those into, I, I do not impose, I didn't decide whether you're sensitive or oversensitive. You know, you have a, is, there's a much more of an awareness that people have different backgrounds, sexualities, identities, hi histories, windows of tolerance you know all those sorts of things that people are doing yeah. and i think that's generally the way things are, are going i mean i suppose i'd be naturally optimistic as a as a therapist i suppose i need to, like need to be i am which is why it sort of works there is an uh, optimism hopefulness for people uh, but i i do think that for most people as i say if you held the mirror up and said you know that's actually distressing for that person they would try and do something different and anybody that would say well i'm going to do it anyway they need to toughen up and get over it which is very easy to say, though you would, you, you know, you need to pay attention to whether that's somebody you want to be in relationship with. Because is there a relationship? Uh, you know, one of the qualities, the necessities for relationship is empathy, which is imagining yeah. what's what somebody else feels like. It's not just what somebody else's life is like; it's what it feels like to be somebody else, isn't it? And uh, and if you're looking at something like banter, as I say, if it's that very narrow deliberately picking on an aspect of somebody's appearance or how they speak or their intelligence or whatever it is to laugh at it i'm dubious about it i i think it's interesting they did they did something on romantic relationships and said signs of st strong romantic relationships there were four of them and the three of them yeah. i can't quite remember them now they'd made perfect sense to me but the last one was teasing and i thought that which is that amplify looking at a, a, a fault i suppose and amplifying it and laughing at it uh, so that whoever wrote that thought that that was the sign of a good connected relationship. I just, I don't know, because I think perhaps good, strong relationships, you can tease somebody. Maybe yeah. it's that. Uh, does it actually strengthen relationships? I'm I'm not sure. Because I think that the difficulty is what, what we're doing is pointing out a problem and a flaw there. Do we as much or even more point out what we value in somebody else and what we're grateful for? And I don't think most of us are doing are doing that. And we just need to be conscious, I think, because connection in relationship is the thing that brings most people meaning of purpose and joy, that we are not doing things which inadvertently disconnect us from other people or disconnect other people from us.
I would have many more questions, but I know David has a question. We're running short well, of time. Yeah, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> John Paul pretty much covered what I was going to say, okay. which was, you know, I think that is the the problem with, you know, in inverted commas bands that, you know, it is so subjective. And, and you know, and I can think of an exact, um, and we haven't got time for me to go into it, but of, an ex- of a situation, like you say, where it was banter, and I got a little bit aggressive, left the group, um, you know, and, and the person that was having the bands, you know, the next day or, you know, later that evening, they're like, oh, God, sorry, you know, I didn't realise. But at the same time, like, there's nothing I hate more than my partner saying, are oh, you being oversensitive? Mm. Uh, well, my wife, sorry, we're married now. But <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and you're saying something there because... I I naturally tease my wife, you know, probably too often. You know, I should, you know, I might as well admit it on the podcast and publicly. <laughs> but it, it is something which I must have learned somewhere, right? Yeah. It's, you know, it's something you do. And, and she yeah. pointed it out, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to do less of that or not do yeah. that at all. I mean, and children don't, I, they learn to tease, but I don't think they, I don't think they come into the world doing it. And look, it's not, I mean, people say, oh, I have a sense of humour. I do, and it happens all the time. And my wife teases me for, and I do the same with, with my wife. It, yeah. It's just, I think our natural tendency, because we are fear, anger, sometimes people, what they're doing when they're teasing people is they're a bit annoyed about something and they're trying to say it in a way that yeah. makes the other person laugh or makes them laugh. You know, I think Stephen King said uh, humour is almost always anger with its makeup on. I don't think it's true that yeah. it's almost always, but oh, I think... Oh, that is... That's yeah. good. That's in good. a relationship, I think yeah, it is. He should write. He should be a writer or something. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote a book. But... <laughs> um, but I think it's just being conscious of it, isn't it? Because anger is disconnecting, whether we're smiling or not. Yeah. Mm. Right. Well, obviously, we've mentioned that you've got a, a YouTube channel, you've got a podcast. Um, if people want to, to find more of your content, John Paul, or, you know, get in touch for uh, a session in Cobham. Yep. Um, how do they get in touch with you? I am. Yes. Yeah, so I'm on YouTube. I think it's John Paul Davis TTP. But if you put in John Paul Davis, it will come up with my I will come up with my channel. And yeah, so the podcast is on Apple, Spotify, all the usual places. Again, if you put in John Paul Davis, I think it's called this trusted place, but it's my name as well. Uh, but also on <laughs> Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook. But if you if you Google my name and actually if you go to my website, thistrustedplace.co.uk, there are links to the podcast, the YouTube channel and all social media as well. Well, uh, thanks very much for your time. Uh, you know, again, I feel like we we started getting into the gold. Yeah. Just as the time is saying five minutes left. Um, it's like therapy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> I can relate to that. So there we go. We'll pause and save that for next time. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Feel free to reach out to Volker or David via our website, www.manupdown.com or podcast at manupdown.com with any feedback or to let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Hear you again soon.